Father God, this evening we come to you knowing that, um, uh, Lord, that you have more for us than we, we would ever know or imagine. Uh, Father, I pray tonight as we uh, start this Christmas series looking at who Jesus is, the importance of him coming here, and what this idea of God dwelling amongst people is like. God, I pray that as we, as we jump into the word tonight, <clears throat> in an unlikely place to start, that we would find you, and in you that we would find who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. So Father, uh, tonight we pray that you uh, would, would uh, uh, creep into our hearts, God, that you would remind us of who you are, that you would light a fire in us to become more and more like you so that more people would know the goodness of God. So Father, we give all this to you in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, does anybody remember the show Quantum Leap? Okay, blessed are those who have seen it. This was one of my favorite shows when I was little. I think it ran from like 89 to 93, so it didn't have a long stint. But the idea was this, I want to make sure I get this name right, Dr. Sam Beckett uh, would travel back in time and he would uh, find these mistakes in history and show up as a different person and try to fix it. And if you remember, he did all kinds of things from like trying to interrupt Hitler before World War II happened, trying to, uh, you know, all these different things. But it was kind of my introduction to time travel, somewhere between there and back to the future. I'm not sure how it happened. But I fell in love with this idea that we weren't, uh, uh, that, that what if, right? And this is the big what if. What if we didn't have to just live life forward? What if you could go back? What if you could go back and change some stuff? Now, my guess is around the room, if we had testimony night and set up a microphone, we could uh, go on for a while about things we wish we could go back and change. There's a lot of stuff that we wish that we could go back and redo or things that we would fix if we were able to not just have to live life forward, but have to go back so we can fix things and move it forward or make it better. 2020 has been an outrageous year, and I don't think you need me telling you, although I'm pretty sure I do it every Sunday, 2020 has been off the rails crazy. Not just things with the virus, though that's a big deal. There's been different candidates. There's been different results. Uh, just a heads up, here, here's what I would love to do. I'd love to go back and have a little conversation with the team at Charmin and say, hey guys, in a few months, we're going to need your supply to meet our demands, so can you step it up? right? Because I don't want to wait in line for my two-ply quilted, right? And so all throughout 2020, we've had things, man, if I could go back and change something, if I could go back and tell people, if I could go back and shift something so this year wouldn't have been as wild as what it was, some of us would go back and fix things in our personal life. 2020 aside, life never stopped. It just got things added on to it. There's still health issues that we would go back. If we knew where we were going to end up now, we would have changed some things back then. There's things with relationships. If you knew where your uh, marriage would end up or your singleness would end up or things with your kids would end up or things at work would end up, go back and being able to change that so that the course of history would change. And, and let's throw in some of our poor decisions we've ever made in life. Things that you wish you never would have done. Things you wish you never would have said. Stuff that you think, man, if I could go back, I would wildly transform everything that happened in that moment. Maybe it's history stuff with different wars or assassinations or genocides. What if you could go back to the very beginning? 
Like when Adam and Eve were staring down that tree like it was a T-bone. Drool coming out of the mouths, wondering what this could be. How much easier would that make life? If you could be like, guys, I'm, I'm going to tell you from a few thousand years down the road, not worth it. You're going to screw a lot of stuff up for a lot of us. We, we don't like it. Right? If you could go back to the garden. I, I want us to go back to the garden. It seems like a weird place to start when you're talking about Christmas. But the best place to start when you're talking about anything is the beginning. And it, in Genesis, what we find, and here's the thrust of our series this year, is I want us to go back to the garden so we can understand God's beginning for everything we know and understand his intention for it and what it means for us today. Here's what I want us to see. As we go back to the garden, some of us need to relearn who God is. Not like uh, anything weird. What I'm trying to say is some of us have bought into or have altered how we think or who we think he is based on things we've heard from other people, experiences we've had in our own life that you can't find in the Bible, but we are 100% sure may be accurate. What I mean is for a lot of us, our view of God has been tainted by a lot of things instead of coming straight out of the book. If you want to know who God is, read his book. It's really good. And so tonight I want us to be able to see who God is out of this. There's another thing I want us to see uh, that it reminds us of our God-intended identity and purpose. So many of us forget that our purpose in life is not to make money and go through the day-to-day grind. Our purpose is not survival. Our, Our purpose has work involved. It has intention involved. There is something in you, God wired, that he needs to get out to do the things that he wants to do. That's in Genesis. I also think Genesis 1 is a good place to start because it puts traction to our hope. Sometimes we can hope for things, but it's so slippery because we don't know. It's covered in our doubt. And when that hill gets covered in doubt, it's hard to get traction as you're moving your way up. You, okay, I guess God said it, so we'll find out, but I don't think it's going to work, and I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know all these things, and it feels like, yeah, but... And what we find in Genesis is this. It's not just something to come that will be new, but it's a restoration that God's planning of something that's already been. He's not painting a new picture. He's reminding us of what our purpose and intention was. It also gives us a vision for what we are working towards in our kingdom work on here as we live out God's intention and what he's given us until he returns. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, we start reading the very first words of Scripture, which is actually where the word Genesis comes from. It's the Hebrew word for beginning. Because Genesis starts with the words, in the beginning, God created. And that word created is very interesting in Hebrew. It doesn't mean he made a bunch of stuff out of nothing. It more has this idea that he put it together or that he assembled it with purpose and intent. So it's not the idea of there was absolute uh, 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 nothing and he just started snapping and things popped up like little bubbles and balloons and here we go. It's the idea that out of this chaotic weirdness, God starts putting purpose and intent and form so that there was, a, 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 instead of just randomness, where it was solid. And it says he started creating the heavens, or the word for sky, meaning everything up there. And he created the earth, which means everything that we see when we look around us. He says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
And this imagery is this. There was no purpose. There was no order. There was no meaning. It was formless. And it was empty. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. John Walton, who's a professor out in Wheaton, says it this way when he paraphrases. He's a Hebrew scholar, so as he reads it, he says it this way. The earth was non-functional. Primordial. The water darkness prevailed and a supernatural wind that was permeated with the power of God circulated over the surface of the water. Here's why this is important. Because in all of our lives, there is a formless void of emptiness that we feel. It's part of the human experience because it was part of what God had to start with when He worked. Here's what I love though. In those areas of our life, we get this image in Genesis, but God was hovering over all of that, waiting to do something with what we thought was nothing. Waiting in those areas of your life. I don't know if my job has purpose. I don't know if I'm a good enough husband, dad, father, whatever. I don't know if all this. And what we don't see is God, a spirit-filled power of God hovering over those waters, ready to do something. Over the past 100 to 150 years, so many have looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, trying to turn it into a science book, which it was never intended to be. How do we prove that God created this way and that way and do these things instead of those things. That, we may find that, but that's not its intent. Genesis is a letter, it's a history of God's covenant with His people. Let me say it this way. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the story of God forming relationships with His people that He never meant to break. It's this connection between humanity and divinity. It's where we find who God is and we dwell with Him. I want us to read it differently. What we see in these verses is God taking a meaningless space, entering into uh, to assemble purpose and order and value and intentionality. Because it's the same thing God's trying to do in your own life. Is enter into the purposeless areas where you feel like this doesn't add value. There's no meaning to it. And watch what God does when He starts creating in your life. This story, this garden starts with creating, planting, and populating a garden. I'm not a gardener. You can ask Ray, she'll tell you I'm not a gardener. I don't know. I couldn't tell you one plant from another one. I can't tell you what trees are different from other ones. I don't have a green thumb. I do know how to cut a tree down, which I think is an anti-gardener, but that's about all I've got going on in the gardening department. But I do appreciate gardens. Has anybody been to the botanical garden? Way up, yeah? It's beautiful. Uh, Has anybody, if you haven't been there, have you been like down Michigan Avenue? Pretty flowers, right? Okay. If you're a resident of Chicago, you spend a lot of money on those flowers, so you should go enjoy those. Right? And if not, at the very least, have you driven down Cicero through Midway Airport? Okay, cool. So you've seen gardens. That's all I'm asking. Here's what I love about gardens, and I think it's a beautiful imagery that God gives us starting life there. Is a garden isn't just a random place where random, it's not the wilderness, it's not out in the wild, it's not just a walk in the woods where you find a pretty red flower and you're like, oh, that's a pretty flower. It's where someone takes those things that you found out in the wilderness and gets a bunch of them together and designs and intently creates and forms intentional patterns 
and beauty. So when you're walking through it, the, 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 the essence itself, the flowers themselves are gorgeous, but there's also an artistic piece to the Creator who formed all of that together to create the fullness of what this garden is. Does that make sense? It's not just the individual on its own. Though every flower is pretty, it takes an artistic eye, it takes a Creator, it takes vision to be able to say, but what could we do with one of you here and you over there? And what would it look like if we put all this stuff together and ordered it in a way to where when people look at it, they don't say, well, that one flower is very pretty. But they look at it and say, because that one flower is a part of it, this whole thing is unbelievable. God shows up and creates humanity in a garden space where all these individuals have to come together to paint one giant picture of what beauty looks like compared to most human origin stories at this time meaning right after uh, Israel comes out of Egypt and they're out and we think that's when Moses starts writing uh, Genesis Exodus Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy right around that time all the other human origin stories sound a lot like a really weird sci-fi movie Right? Galactic battles that are in outer space with weird monsters and all this stuff. And that's how cultures came out to say this is how humans were born. Here's what I love about God's story. Is it's God with intended purpose speaking, not battling, but speaking value, intent, and purpose into an emptyless void so that we were connected together into a created plan that God had set in mind before we were born. Words matter. Our origin story of humanity in the Scripture is God creating through His Word, speaking intentionality and purpose-filled usefulness out of a chaotic emptiness. Now here's what I want to tell you in 2020, is in the chaotic emptiness you are living in some of your day-to-day life, God is still speaking. There's still intentionality, there's still purpose, there's still usefulness that he continues to speak to create something in your craziness to build something beautiful that's intent with purpose. We can look at the world around us or the person inside of us and come to find the same reality that we see in Genesis where there's this chaotic purposelessness that needs the words of God and the breath of God forming something new in who we are. What's interesting in our beginning is that God is in the midst of it as He's creating it. He rests in it. He's satisfied by it. When we, uh, We've gone to Michigan the last couple summers and we play in the sand while we're up there because that's what you do. And so while we're there, I'm a perfectionist if we've ever met. For me, if I'm going to engage in a sandcastle, I want a TV show to pick up the artistic beauty that I'm throwing forward. I want to create pillars and turrets i want this thing to have like moving parts to it i don't know how you do it with sand but that's what i want to do i want it to be over the top and beautiful and incredible and exactly how it's supposed to be our younger boys aren't that way they don't care what i love is uh, right they will sit in the middle of the sand and they'll start building stuff all up around them and it looks like hills and piles and weird things and all this kind of stuff And here's what ends up happening, right? It's when they get up, they look at, oh, that's great, and then they run away, and as they run away, the whole thing topples off because they kicked it on its way over. Here's what I want us to see. God created the world with Him in the center of it. He created it with Him dwelling in the thing that He was creating. When we take God out of it, the whole thing crumbles. 
And what we end up doing so often is this world and this life that God creates where He intended purpose for Him to be with us. And we move it to a place where He's no longer in the middle living amongst what we're trying to build. The whole thing falls because we took Him out of the place that He created created it to be. In a year where we fully understand the ramifications of isolation, as we go into Christmas, I want us to see the spiritual significance that God created us to dwell with Him. And as we go through Scripture, what we see is when we sinned, He continued making efforts to have places and opportunities to be with us all the way up to the birth of Emmanuel, Jesus, meaning God with us. That He's with us and we are with Him. This word dwelling, we don't use very much in our uh, regular language, right? When I introduce myself to somebody, I'll say, hey, my name's Don Kaufman. These are the people with whom I dwell, right? Uh, that's a vernacular that's not common for us. And so we don't use it very often. Uh, but the, the language there is different than just lives with. This isn't like uh, the live-in roommate, Uh, This idea is that God comes and He takes up residence, that He moves in, that He's not just visiting for the weekend in your life, that He showed up with the U-Haul truck ready to move into your space, that who you are would be inhabited by who He is, and that who you are is fully consumed by who He is. Now here's the hard part when God comes to dwell, is there's areas of our lives we like to keep God out of, because we think our life works better without Him being in those spaces. The reality is, and you know the rub, God starts going room to room and saying, oh, and you're like, ah, don't look in there, right? Don't mess with these decisions. I like to drink a little, keep that door closed. I like to get angry, don't mess with that, right? I like to be messy. I like to, you know, date whoever, I like to do whatever I want to do. Don't look in all those rooms. The reality is God doesn't invite us to a relationship where he's our next door neighbor that comes and visits us every so often when we have time to clean and we're ready for him to come over. When Eugene Peterson is retranslating John chapter 1, he uses the language that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. That he's living here now. He resides in who we are and what we do. What it means to follow Jesus is to invite him to a full access view of our life so that he can shape us and form us to be more like Christ. I want us to look at what a life looks like in the created planned garden and what we receive when we're in the presence of God with us. The first thing is this, is what we receive when God dwells with his people is we receive enjoyment and resources. Now, if your church upbringing was anything like mine, I don't know when I was little and I thought of church, I thought of the word enjoyment. Boring, maybe. Painful sometimes. Enjoyment? I don't know. What shifted for me is when I stopped thinking about going to church and I started thinking about encountering God. And I started thinking about Jesus. What what shifted for me was a personal relationship. It was when things clicked. It's when I started uh, giving my life over to Christ and I started receiving Christ into my life. Uh, Pay attention in Genesis. What we read is God creating uh, beauty for enjoyment and for resources. In day one, he creates day and night. And he looks at it and he says, this is good. Now the word isn't like good, better, best, where it's like, oh, it could have been better, but this is suitable. The word good in Hebrew has this connotation of like um, beauty. 
where he would create it and look at it and say, oh, that's good. This is really good. So he creates day and night and says, this is good. He creates the sky and the water and separates that. And he looks at it and he says, this is really good. He creates all kinds of vegetation and he looks at it and he says, this is good. And then he creates the sun and the moon and he looks at it and he says, this is good. I love when he creates the sun and the moon uh, because in the language there in Genesis 1, it says, uh, out of the darkness will come a light. And then he goes on and he creates uh, with animals in the sky and water and he says, this is good. And then he creates all the animals on the land, wild animals, livestock, right? Now when I read the word livestock, I'm thinking... T-bone, thank you, Jesus. Okay, just want to make sure we're all reading the same Bible. And small creatures. And he says, this is all good. He's looking at creation, saying, this is what I planned. This is beautiful. This is perfect. This is exactly what I set out to do. When Jesus, or sorry, this natural beauty and creation for enjoyment, beauty and diversity. Things with purpose for eating and others for purpose of awe and wonder and beauty. Uh, for a couple of years, I got to live in Boulder, Colorado, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And one of the things I loved about being in Colorado is when you're in the mountains, there's no mistaking how small you are and how big everything else is. The mountains are incredible. We can't recreate mountains. God did that. And when you're around it, it's incredible. There's some things that are just there to put you in awe and wonder of what God's doing. The ocean is one of those things, if you've ever been in it. I'm a decent swimmer, but if I get too far out, at some point I can't swim back. Why? There's something about the awe and wonder of creation to enjoy it, to have resources from it, and just to stare at it and think of how good God is that he created an ocean. Why? I don't know. Maybe just to enjoy Even Jesus comes later, and when he says this, when he's dwelling with his people, he reminds them, hey, guys, listen, even if people stop giving praise to God, creation's going to cry out. So even if you decide, well, I'm not going to pray today, God's still fine. He created a world that's going to worship him whether you want to or not. We get to join into the intended purpose of all creation when we worship. Now, the second thing I want us to look at is this is where God dwells with people, we receive an abundant, everlasting fullness of life. Abundant, everlasting fullness of life. Here's where I'm getting that from. We see in Genesis these rivers and this stream that flows out of the garden. Now in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, it says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. Now the language there, pay attention, there was a river watering the garden. This river was taking care of what God had planned, but it didn't stop there. In fact, it flowed out from there, and it watered the dry desert landscape that happened all around there. Best guesses are that this is somewhere right where the Persian Gulf hits Iraq. That that's geographically, who knows, but that's the guess. Dry desert wasteland all the way around there, but there's a garden that's planted. Here's what I want us to see this coming into life is a lot of us will come to church 
or these spiritual experiences because we get filled up by the Spirit of God. There's a thing uh, uh, that happens when you're in the Word by yourself or when you're here singing where God starts filling you up and you feel that river of the Spirit of God that's flowing uh, during a worship song, during a message, during time together, and it overflows who you are. And here's what we'll miss. The intended purpose is not just that the water flows and waters everything here, but that it flows out from here into the rest of the world. That what God does in the places where we encounter Him flows out from those places to your workplace, into your family, into your friends, into your neighbors. That the Spirit of God doesn't just stay in Eden, but it in fact flows out from there. This river water Eden, but it also flowed into Eden to give life to the rest of the known world. People that didn't even know God were being refreshed and were receiving life because of who God is. Life from God flows this never-ending, abundant, everlasting provision of the fullness of life that allows our life to flourish. In this garden, there's trees and flowers and fruit and veggies and drinking water. Life is sustained by this living water. Because God continues to flow, because His Spirit, this is an imagery that gets used throughout Scripture, God is this living water. It flows and it brings life with it. And because it goes, it allows life to pop up where it likewise wouldn't be. When Jesus meets this woman at a well, she's been isolated. She's got a track record in the history that means she doesn't want to be seen by people because they might not want to see her. So she goes out alone in the heat of the day to get her water for the day because she knows no one's going to talk to her or look at her funny because they know her story. They know what she's done. They've met her ex-whatevers and they've got an idea. Jesus goes out and he finds her and he asks her a question, can I have some water? And she replies with, who do you think you are asking me for water? Culturally, we hate each other. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, this isn't how it's supposed to work. And Jesus says this, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But she asked, where can you get this water? Because this is the best spot I know of. Uh, where's this moving water? I've been coming to this well, this sitting pot of water. This is where everything's coming from. And, and here's the reality for a lot of us. We go to the same wells looking for different results. Go to the same holes where we keep digging up the water, hoping it'll do something different, and it never does. We go to the same places asking God to give us a different life, and that's not where it's from. Jesus says, if you keep coming back here, you're going to be thirsty time after time after time. And we know this, right? Because we do the same stuff. We go back to the same thing over and over, expecting that God's going to bring us different things. Like, we can get angry whenever we want because it makes us feel better, and it's going to make our life better. Or we can be isolated, or we can uh, eat to our heart's content, and we're not going to get a, you know, a, a big belly or what, you know, whatever. That we can engage in drinking, we can smoke whatever we want to, we can go out on the week, we can do all these things, and guess what? Time after time, Jesus isn't lying. We're going to the same places expecting different results, and that's not how it works. Jesus says this, everyone who drinks this water is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them, the same language we hear in Genesis, a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Whoever drinks this water I give them, 
they will, they will become a well of water that springs out into eternal life. That where you go, people see the goodness of God because you've been with Him and you've drank His living water. The power of your life comes from the Spirit of God. And because they see you, you're pouring out goodness into who they are. Because they've come and they've been in your presence, they've been able to see the presence of God, and that's flowed out of you into them. When you get close to Jesus, Jesus pours out of you so that others can see you. And we read this, and here's where it gets hard. Most of us live out in the dry desert. Most of us live far away from God, expecting, wondering, why, God, aren't you making life here? And he says, I've invited you to the place where you can get it, but we like it better when we're way out here by ourselves, and we don't have to mess with all the things involved with it. And here's what we find over and over. Jesus inviting us to himself to get this water. Eden, this place where this living water was refreshing, bringing abundant life that did not end flowing out into the world around it. God intended for us to be living in that life. The next one is this, soul protection. We don't often think of this when we read the book of Genesis. Where was God trying to protect our souls? Where was that coming into play? I love this imagery. He gives us this tree of life. And then he gives us this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve had full access to all of those. They could have gone wherever they wanted. God said, do not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or else you will die. Now I want you to think about this, right? Take the trees out of the picture and put the symbolism there and think about your own life. God says, I'm giving you full access to everlasting life, life abundant. I'm giving you all the resources and provision you'll ever need to do anything you need to do. I will take care of you so that you can accomplish the mission, goal, and vision, and purpose I've placed in your life. The only thing you can't do is touch that. Here's what's crazy about Adam and Eve. We don't know, but we can assume that they probably ate off the tree of life. They were able to. That they were able to do that. And this knowledge of good and evil, they knew good. They were able to walk with God in the garden. They were able to go on strolls with Jesus. How many of you tomorrow would love to set up like a literal walk that you could just go down the sidewalk and be like, hey, Jesus, I got some questions today. Adam and Eve were at that level, dwelling with God in the garden, and were able to live and walk in that way. Here's the one thing that tripped them up. We, like Adam... In the curiosity of wanting to know about evil, we end up becoming evil. Because we want to know. We have everything good, everything fine. God has supplied us with everything we need. But I'm just curious about that. I want to know what's over there. I want to see what's going on here. It isn't about God being bad and pushing us out. It reminds us that God created us to be good. But we chose evil just to have the knowledge of it. We still do the same thing thousands of years later. This insatiable desire to know everything except the God who created everything. God says, come to me. You can come to me. You're welcome to come to me. And how many of us on Monday are like, I don't know, I'm just going to go to Netflix. 
Why don't you read the Bible? Why don't I have enough time? Well, why don't you wake up early? Because I'm really tired. Why are you really tired? Because I stay up till three watching Netflix. That's a rough way to approach the God of the universe that's welcomed you into his throne room. Where he says, you can come to me and have life everlasting. You can come to me and have peace. You can be filled up and provided for here. And we're like, yeah, but what about the stuff we can't do? We'd rather do that instead. The option was still available, but the guidance and instruction was to protect them. And I think that's the point I want to make, is what God laid the table with was all this stuff and spoke to them so they would know what would get them in trouble. But it's almost like laying that red button on the table and saying, don't push it. We tend to ask questions like, why would God give them the option? Why would God even give them the option to sin? Why would God even put it out there so they could mess with it? Here's the problem. We read that because we hate the fact of the sin that's in us. Read it in the context of Genesis chapter 1, and here's a better question for us. Not why would God give them the option, but with everything created perfectly, why would we choose the one thing God spoke to protect us from? He said, enjoy all of it. Just don't mess with this. Why would we mess with that? And why do we keep doing it on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday? Now, here's what I love about God is we're reminded in Scripture, thank you, Jesus, that His mercy is new every Monday and every Tuesday and every Wednesday because we keep going back to the same stuff that's been killing us over and over. We want to know. Yeah, 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 God, I hear you. I hear you say life everlasting, joy overflowing, love that's never ending, but I just want to mess with that thing. But I still want to check out that person. But I still want to have an idea of what's going to go on over here. And we say, yeah, yeah, God, I hear you, but. And as a Bible college professor of mine once said, watch out when you say but. Yeah, God, I hear you, but here's what I want to do. God, I see what you're saying, but here's what I think is going to happen. I love in Psalm 62, which is one of my favorite psalms, which I probably say for about 50 of the psalms, but this one is one of my favorites. And he starts off with this phrase. He says, my soul finds rest. Now, I don't know how your 2020 has been going, but when my soul finds those moments of rest, there's nothing like it. But he doesn't stop there. That's where we want to stop because we're like, oh, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, except for this guy knows, and he says, my soul finds rest in God. And we're like, yeah, but where else can it find rest? And that's the problem. And when he's writing Psalms, what he's writing is saying, I've tried all the other things. I've looked in all the other places. I've done everything I could on my own, but my soul finds rest in God. But not only that, my salvation comes from him. I've tried all these things to save me out of all this stuff. And guess what? It doesn't work. More money doesn't save you. Right? Some of you are like, well, if my spouse would blah, 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 that would, you know, whatever. They're saying the same thing about you, just so you know. Right? Doesn't save you. More money doesn't save you. Uh, Looking different doesn't save you. Buying better clothes doesn't save you. A brand new car will not save you. It may be nice, but it's not going to save you. What the guy writing the psalm says is my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. My eternity is secure because of Him. And this is where it moves into a a much more secure place. He says, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. 
and I will never be shaken. This imagery of long as I am in the presence of God, I don't have to worry about everything that's outside of the presence of God. He ends by saying this, I will never be shaken. Now, I want you to pay attention to that phrase because in 2020, we've been so shaken. And it's not God's fault. It's not the environment around us' fault. It's not because of an election cycle. It has nothing to do with a virus. We're shaken, church, because we don't find our rest in God. We're looking for salvation in a hundred other places and we're not finding it in the place that we can get it. Our rock, oftentimes, is that sandy soil where we try to build something and every rain that comes, it pushes it down. We need to be reminded God wired us with the intent that we would know who He is and that our soul would be secure. And when we drift away from Him, that's where we start to be shaken. But when He is our fortress, we won't be. The next one is this. Uh, In this place where God dwells, what we find is we find purpose. There's a reason we exist. We are here for something. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. In our likeness. This Hebrew word for image there means kind of like an icon. Like the little button on your phone that says Spotify. That's what I use at least. It's just a little button. But here's the deal. When I tap that button, it opens me up to millions of different songs in this world of music. Right? That icon is symbolic of what's behind it and what's in it. Once I click on that, I can listen to all kinds of stuff. And some of the stuff I wouldn't share with you what I'm listening to, all right? It's not that crazy. I just think you'd make fun of me. But, uh, right? So now I can listen to all these different things. Here's what he's saying. Uh, When man is created, when you are created, you are an icon of the image of God. You are the image of God. When people see you, when they look into your life, when they click on you, it opens them up to this world of who God is. It opens them up to a kingdom of who God is and what He does. The problem with a lot of us is we've drifted from God so when they click on us, they don't see a lot of Him. But our intended purpose was so that when people peek into our lives, they don't see people like the rest of the world that's just as anxious, that's just as scared, that's just as stressed out, that's just as angry, that's just as apathetic. When they click on us, what they should be able to see is the image of God Almighty. They should see a peace that they can't understand. They should see love that doesn't make sense. Joy. Because that's the image we were created in. That's who we were called to be. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. And then it goes into this little poem that gets a little redundant, but I think it's to make a point because sometimes we don't read it well enough. He says, so God created mankind in His own image. In the image of man, He created him. And just in case you weren't listening, male and female... He created them. You're not a mistake. Your life is not an accident. One of my favorite thoughts, the first time I read Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, I remember him saying, your parents' relationship may have been a mistake. 
The pregnancy may have been a mistake, but you were not a mistake. That God knew who you were, who you would be, what giftedness you would have, the story he would write with you. He knew how you would impact people. He knew what you were going to offer. He knew the giftedness that was going to be in you and the personality that was going to be there. Your family's story does not mess with God's story. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And not just biologically increasing in number, though that's a fun part too. Instead here, what he's talking about is this image of God that's in you. Go make sure that more people get more of that. Spread this image of God to other people. I want to make sure the rest of the world knows who they were created to be and what they were created to do. And then he goes on and he says, fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue is this idea of bring it under control. He says rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in verse 5 he says there was no one to work the ground. Now those of us that think that uh, retirement is the end all gift of what God has given to humanity, you've missed a lot of Genesis 1. If you think heaven is going to look like an overstuffed lazy boy in front of a Bears team that actually has a quarterback and never loses, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you think that eternal uh, laziness is what God had planned, you've not read the book because we were created, it says here, to work. God creates this beautiful place and says, you know what? The upkeep of this, I want my people in my image to cultivate this. I want them to be a part of the ongoing beauty. I want them to see that it stays beautiful because their hands touched it. I want them to know that they've been a part of this. He says, now the Lord God put, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east near Eden where he put the man that he had formed. This idea of put has uh, its intent with placement. God, throughout Scripture, says He put things in places mainly when He's building the temple or the tabernacle. And it says He put the lampstand in its place. And He put the Ark of the Covenant in its place. And He placed these things where they belong to do what they were called to do so they reflect the glory of God so the world would know Him. Verse 15, He says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and to take care of it. When he says fill the earth, I, I love that image, but here it's to bring the elements and the living creatures and the resources under order to harness it for good, to rule over it, and to work it. This idea of working, if you've ever worked in a garden, it's for two purposes. One, to give it the best shot at being the most productive. You work the garden so that it can thrive and do what it's supposed to do. You also work the garden to make sure the weeds don't grow up in it. God's put us here to make sure that the kingdom of God has the best chance possible to grow up into its fruitfulness and also for us to be weeding out the evil that's going to choke out the good that could grow. The reason why gardens are so beautiful is because the amount of people that work the gardens. God called us to be those people so that when the world looks at the image of God, they see something so incredibly beautiful because they see the hands that have been redeemed, they get back to work to do the thing that God's called us to do. This last one is companionship. God calls and looks at Adam. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I'm going to make a helpful 
or a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was asleep, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Here's what I love about this story. Because some of us have grown up in a, a culture where we can often read Scripture and find places where it looks like, you know, the man is the leader of all things and the lady is just there to kind of make tea and hope everything goes well. When you read this, now, now take culture out of it. When you read this story, what you'll find is this. God looked around at all of creation and said, there's nothing else here that's a good enough helper, which means aid. There's not anything good enough here. Why? Because he needs somebody that's also in the image of God. He didn't put his image in all that other stuff. He put it in man. So out of man, this image, he didn't make a second thing. The first thing was fine. He just said it's not that he can't work. It's not that he can't live out his purpose. It's not that on his own uh, he can't do the things. He just said it's not good for them to do it on his own. There's a thing about companionship and working together here that's hugely important. God pulled from his image bearer to create an equal image bearer. Not subservient, that's not in the language at least, you can come up with that on your own. Not weaker, not an assistant to the leader. No language of hierarchy or authority is used here. The Hebrew word aid that's given in this word helper it is the same word that when you say like a hurricane towards city and let's send aid. Why? Because on its own, I don't know if it's going to be that great, outside sources are going to make it even better. Here's something I want you to grab onto, because I think it's important. Is the only, there's a handful of occasions, but I'm going to say 95% of the time, this word for helper shows up in the rest of the Bible. It's not uh, the squire helping the king. It's not the troops helping the general. It's not these lowly people that are helping the person that gets all the accolades. That's not the role of the wife. That's not the role of the husband. Through the rest of Scripture, where this word shows up is when God shows up to help people that can't get it right. So be careful when we use this language and we get these images. God looks at man and says, no, this is really good, but there needs to be companionship along with that. I like John Walton translated this word as suitable helper into counterpartner, different but alongside of, that together they can do more than they can alone. And not just in marriage, in church, that God would put us around people who don't have greater gifts than everyone else, that we serve together, love together, move forward together, so that together we counterbalance the stuff. Danny's incredible at stuff that Vince isn't great at, but Vince is way better at stuff than maybe Cam might be. And that's how God moves in the church so that together we're what we're supposed to be and we don't have to be alone. When we are where God dwells, there's companionship so that we're not isolated or alone as we live out the purpose. But God has brought others to do life with us. Now, I want us to jump out of that garden because there's some stuff that I want us to see. God dwelled with His people in the garden. We were created to be with Him where He is. And when we walked away from Him, we removed ourselves from being with Him. And it's no wonder why we struggle so much. The further you get away from God, the further you walk into troubled times and hardships and difficulties and arguments with people and anger issues and isolation and stress and worry and fear. The mess of sin and the struggle to survive were not a part of God's original plan. 
The mess of your sin was not what God intended. The struggle of day-to-day life was not a part of God's original plan. So why is this so important? Because hope is not dependent on something coming that we've never had. Our hope is in the restoration of what God had originally planned it to be. The next time we see God in a garden, in Genesis chapter 3, if you remember, Adam and Eve eat the apple, they go hiding. God kind of does the thing you do with little kids playing hide and go seek. Where are you? Why are you hiding? As though he's God Almighty and he doesn't know. We're hiding because we were ashamed. And they're sent out of the garden, and there's these angels set up at the gate, if you remember, with flaming swords, which I thought was a little overkill, but whatever. Flaming swords waving back and forth, saying, you can't get back in. You're unable on your own to get back in. And the next time we see God show up in a garden, read 40-some-odd more books of the Bible, you get to the story of Matthew chapter 26, when he enters a garden. They've just had the Last Supper. They've just had some of their hopes and dreams kind of crashed or thrown around about who Jesus is and what he was going to do. And all he asked was for his disciples, would you just stay awake? And would you just pray while I'm praying? Could you just keep alert? Would you keep watching? And when God goes back into the garden, his people don't obey and they don't listen and they don't help him and they just are tired so they fall asleep. Which I think may be a more accurate depiction of sometimes who we are as the church. When God just says, would you stay vigilant? Would you stay paying attention? Would you stay watching? And honestly, we're just too lazy and tired. So he goes and he prays and he cries out to God, God, if there's any other way for this to happen, God, would you take this from me? I don't want to do this. And he goes back and he looks for his friends and guess what? We all fell asleep again. So here's God on his own in isolation distant from people that he came to save who can't even stay awake so he can go pray. And his final prayer is one that I've tried to pray multiple times and I don't do a great enough job, but it's one that grabs me. At the very end of all this, as he's weeping and as he's crying, Jesus cries out, it's not what I want, but it's what you want. That for Jesus, it was fulfilling his purpose. That's what was going to happen in the garden. Adam and Eve didn't do it, so Jesus is going to. They couldn't just live out this beautiful purpose in the garden. So Jesus makes the promise and the commitment that he's going to continue with what God wants. He's not going to run away from it. He's going to stick with it. In this garden, not man being banished from the tree of life, but the Son of Man taken to His death on a tree to bring new life. This garden is not about disobedience to walk away from God because of evil, but an obedience to God because of His goodness. Unjustly, illegally tried in court, condemned to death, beaten and humiliated, He dies a criminal's death in public execution. But there's one last garden scene that we see in the life of Jesus. This one's my favorite. As the story goes later on in the day, in chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus has breathed his last breath, and it says this. It says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Here's what I love about this garden. 
in this garden where this tomb is. It's not a place anymore. This imagery isn't one where uh, uh, death has been kicked out of. Instead, this is a garden where death is finished. This becomes uh, the kind of garden where God is back at work creating beauty out of chaos and form, or life out of a formless emptiness and purpose out of pain. God goes back to work erasing the issues that happened when sin happened in the garden. He goes back in correcting it by bringing the same life out of the empty void. This garden has angels. But they're not ones waving giant swords to keep you out. They're the ones in the tomb sitting on the bed where he was laid saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen just like he promised you. And they don't say stay out. They say come in. It's an invitation. Come look at how good God's been that He's done what He said He would do. That the death that He didn't deserve but you did, He died and it didn't hold Him and it's not going to hold you either. In this garden, there's a tomb. And when God enters it, He reverses the death out of the first garden by resurrecting into a new life. God is in the garden. And out of this garden, Jesus conquers the death that has shackled us ever since. God offers an invitation to be with Him for eternity. The human story starts in Eden, living in the midst of the presence of God. And out of in Christ, out of this garden tomb, we are a new creation. In Genesis 1, God created. But in Matthew chapter 28, it's we become a new creation. We get to redeem and restore what God planned because of what He's already done. We are overflowing in His abundant life. Not because of a river on the ground, but because of the Spirit God that's flowing. Our souls are secured in His death and in His resurrection. Uh, we are restored to His purpose and His plan for our lives. And we don't have to do it alone. He doesn't create the Christian experience to be lived out in isolation by yourself. It's for church. It's to be gathered. That's why people fight and die so that they can be with the church. Because together, we can walk this path as we go. And not just that, He promises that He will never leave us. And He will never forsake us. And in His final commission, He says, and don't worry, I'm going to be with you always until the very ends of the age. God also sends people out of this garden too, but not in the same way He did in Genesis 3. In John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me. It's a weird thing for Jesus to say. What He's saying is this physical body I have here, it's going to go. Don't physically hold on to me. Spiritually hold on to what I've done. He says this, because I've not yet ascended to the Father, but instead go. Don't stay and hold on to me here in the garden. Go. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Inclusiveness. You're not cast out. You belong to my God and your God. He's yours and you're His. Verse 18, I love this. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Out of this garden, Jesus sends after the resurrection and the promise of a new life where life gets changed. He sends them out not because they don't belong in the garden, but because there's nothing left in the garden for them. 
The Spirit of God in them is what it's going to be to carry the presence of God out into the world as they go. And here's the message Mary Magdalene leaves with. I've seen the Lord. I went to put flowers at a tomb and I end up seeing the resurrected Jesus. I went looking for a dead body, but I found an alive Savior. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answers His people and He says to them, if anyone loves Me, He will follow My Word. And My Father will love Him and we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will come to Him and we will make our dwelling among Him. In a way, we become kind of this embodiment of a living garden of Eden where the presence of God is in us and that flowing water that comes out of us and the beauty of created purpose is in us and who we are uh, exemplifies the Spirit of God and what He's doing. God isn't looking for a place anymore. He's looking for a people. He isn't waiting for you to make yourself perfect. He's looking for you to do two things. Love Him back. He's already shown He loves you. All he's saying is, would you love me back? And the second one is this, and it's what tripped up Adam in the garden. Would you just obey his word? Would you just do what he asked us to do? This beautiful place that he's given us, all these things around us, would we do those things? Stop disobeying, stop running from him, and into the death the way Adam and Eve did. We're so good at it. I'm really good at it. You're really good at it. Leave the formless emptiness of the death that we live in and receive Christ's resurrected life to bring us back into His presence. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read one more garden story because I'm on a roll. Not really. I have it in my notes, but you know what I'm saying. There's one last story. It's not about being in a garden, but it's using garden imagery. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He says, I'm the vine. And you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. Pay attention to the last part. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Your purpose will deliver. Your value will be seen. Your createdness of what God put in you will come out. Who you are and what you were called to do will happen. All you have to do is stay in Christ. And He reminds us just like we see with Adam and we see with every human being ever since is that if you're apart from Me, you can do nothing. Some of us for the first time, others for maybe the 15th, 100th time, need to bring our life back, not to a garden, but to the presence of God. We need to bring our lives back, not to something He did a long time ago, what He's still doing today. Jesus is actively at work in who we are and what we're doing. If we remain in Him, and He in us, we will bear so much fruit, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. Tonight, I want to ask you this. A lot of us live out in the dry desert when there's a stream of God flowing abundant life that we have full access to. All we have to do is go and drink. And we'll have life everlasting. And we'll never be thirsty again. 
my invitation for all of us, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you've never made a profession of faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord over your life. Tonight, would you leave the formless, empty void of meaninglessness and nothingness? Would you walk away from death? Would you run away from the dry and weary places? Would you come to Jesus, who's the living water, who's the giver of life, who's the author and perfecter of our faith and our purpose, who, who dialed you in to a season of history and a location on the map in a specific family, in a specific place to live out a specific purpose. Would you come to that God that knows better than anybody who you are and what His plan for you is? The reason why Genesis matters so much in the Christmas story is when God comes to be with us, it's because He was already with us and we didn't learn the lesson. I want to ask us tonight, would we respond? As we're singing and as we're worshiping, and this is on your own doing whatever you want to do, if you've never made a profession of faith, you've never made a decision to walk with Christ, I would love for you, I'll probably be back here in the corner, if you want to talk, if you want to pray, we can do that. I would love for you to not leave tonight stuck in a spot where God is not at. To invite him in. He's already promised to walk in. All you have to do is open the door. And for the rest of us, would we just lift our hands and worship, fully surrendered to God, saying, God, I've been away. I've been a runner. I'm looking for the exit door at any opportunity uh, to get away from what you've called me to. But God, I know I need to get back. So as we worship, let me pray. And then we can respond to God. Lord Jesus, tonight, uh, would we respond by giving our lives back to you? God, would we return back to your presence? Not running away and unable to enter back, but because of Jesus, where we've come to see him. Father, many of us can say we've seen the Lord. We've seen him at work. We've seen his faithfulness. We've seen his goodness. God, we've seen your new life that you've offered. We've seen you not just a living historical story, but a living man that's changed our lives. Father, tonight I pray that we would release whatever it is that's holding us back from you. That we would cling to and respond to who you are and what you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.